Well, like I said, good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm Scott. I live in Fort Collins. And um, if you don't know me, I spent about 15 years doing a church plant in uh, Fort Collins. And um, about two years actually ago, kind of switched my call. And I'm working with a church planting network part-time. And then I'm also doing real estate. And so I'm actually having the time of my life. It's a lot of fun. And having the opportunity to... Um, come and to preach and open up God's word is just that. It's a privilege. Um, I always feel like I gain more than sometimes what I can put out because you just spend time with God's word and it just works on you. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is um, actually take a, a little break. You guys are going through the book of Psalms, and I think that's all laid out, all the pastors. And so when Joey needed someone, he said, won't you pick something different? Because we have everything laid out. So perfect. Um, I, I love the Psalms, but I also love to be able to get into God's Word. Um, and so this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to trust Jesus. And, um, you know, as I think we probably all at some level probably um, struggle in some ways. And you know what I love is I love that the Bible doesn't uh, paint some beautiful picture of the perfect way to trust, but it's, it's, it's us in one sense, not struggling to be free, struggling to make God like us and us do all of the Christian life perfectly, but we are free to struggle with the different parts of what God is growing us in and changing us in. And we get that um, throughout the scripture. And we're going to be looking at Mark 5 uh, this morning um, with uh, a couple of individuals and in their desperation coming and kind of being transformed as they encounter Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, but before we do, um, we're going to read from Mark 5, 21 through 43. And if you join me, stand. Um, we'll read the first, I think about the first three verses together, and then I will continue um, our reading. So this is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made alive. And he went with them. And then it continues, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been uh, subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she fell, felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around us, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, 
came and fell at his feet and trembling and with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's uh, father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He looked at her by the hand, or he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Ka'um, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us just your, your word as we look at it, that it would saturate our hearts, that you, the stories and, and, and the scripture would be laid over our stories, that we would be transformed. Lord, as we even come to considering what it is to trust you, may we bring in repentance and faith our lack of trust and what it is to grow in you. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning that you would indeed give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to look at this passage really under three headings. Um, we're going to talk about the people who trusted Jesus. There's this desperation that we see. And then we're going to look at the difficulty in trusting Jesus and unpack that a little bit. And then really the third thing is why we can indeed trust Jesus. And I don't know if where you are this morning or what you're going through or, or the struggles that you're having. Ever notice when we go through circumstances, a lot of times, and I have to admit and repent of this, but Jesus gets on the back shelf when I'm going through circumstances. And so what I think is really interesting is to come to the scriptures and say, what does it look like for Jesus to be at the very center of even our circumstances? Because if you're like me, he kind of gets shifted back. I can only think what's right in front of me, the loss, the hurt, the pain, maybe the struggle, the frustration, uh, relational thing, or anything like that. And what we have here is we have um, uh, just that in front of us. And so let's just allow God's word to uh, do um, what it does, and that is uh, to transform us from the inside out. So really, the first thing I want us to kind of consider is, are the people who trusted Jesus, okay? Um, I, I want to talk about that a little bit because I want us to see it. We see it's a really interesting passage because the story begins, and then all of a sudden, there's this interlude. There's this shifting that takes place in this story. And, and in classic mode, you just see Jesus just operating right through it, Jesus pursuing. And so first, we just see a couple people here. 
Uh, the first is um, Jairus. Uh, his daughter's dying. We're told that. And he approaches Jesus in desperation, as you can imagine. He's probably heard stories of the way that Jesus has pursued, the way that Jesus has done things, and he's just like, I've got to target lock. I've got to find this guy. So he does. And then in the middle of all of that, there's a crowd gathered. He's come off the lake, off the boat, and all of a sudden, there's this, this, this bleeding woman who has been sick for 12 years, hemorrhaging. And the passage just says that she's been suffering so long, and she heard about Jesus, and she came. Now, commentators point out that Jairus and this bleeding woman could not be like two different people any more different than these two. Um, Jairus was uh, morally respectable. Uh, he was a figure of wealth and social prominence. Um, if you know much about Jesus' ministry, it was the Pharisees. Um, you know, they were the ones that kind of had it together. And they kind of hated Jesus, but not Jairus. He had actually fell at Jesus' feet, pled with him earnestly. This Jesus, this carpenter, and he comes in this desperation. And in that very moment, as I just said, we see Mark weave into this story this hemorrhaging woman. And this woman could not be any more different, as I said. While Jairus was morally kind of respectable, she is, she is considered ritually unclean. Um, she has been like this for years. And we're told that she had been under the care of many doctors, and she had gotten worse. A number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I was having back problems. And um, it was mainly because I was just doing lots of trail running, lots of running. I was running like 30 miles a week. And I didn't realize I was just kind of beating myself up. Now, since then, I've switched to just riding bikes. So if I fall on my bike, that's the beating myself up. But I was hurting. My back was hurting. I was going to the doctor. I was going to different people. I was going to every chiropractor I could go. And then this one lady just said, hey, you should go to my Chinese medicine doctor. And I was like, I'm desperate. I'll go. And so I go to this medicine doctor, and I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And he's like, I'm going to shoot some, uh, some sugar into your back. And I was like, that just sounds weird, but I'll go with it. But I knew that this was a problem at when, uh, I, actually, it was okay. It was just like glucose shots. And if you're into this kind of alternative medicine, um, this is where I kind of struggled because he then wraps a like blood pressure cuff around my calf and he's pumping it. And he's like, uh-huh, yep, yep, you're definitely low on calcium. And I was thinking, are you serious? That's like, I'm getting nowhere with this. I'm low on calcium from a blood pressure cup. Okay, so maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I just felt I was swindled. I was writing that guy $120 checks. Not anymore. That day was over. Here's the deal. This woman has gone everywhere to find hope. She's gone everywhere. She's had so much therapy. She's basically spent all of her money and nothing was helping. She wanted desperately to be better so she wasn't the outcast or the richly unclean, the social stigma. Uh, she wanted to be cure because it being cured meant 
everything for her status. Now, here it is. These two people, they do. They trusted Jesus in a sense. They, they're like target locked. We got to go to this guy. But they're opposites. One having everything and the other, um, and, uh, one, okay, one having kind of everything and the other one doesn't in a sense. But they both have so much loss and they need Jesus. They come desperately to Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because if you read the Bible, you see over and over, this is the way we come to Jesus. We come in desperation. You know, we come, you know, empty-handed. We come knowing that we don't have anything. And have you ever noticed that sometimes, even in our best empty-handedness coming to Jesus, it's still full of just bad motivations, right? That we're desperate, we're there, we're trusting him, but we're still doing it out of kind of a selfish motive. But here's what Jesus is showing us. The scriptures are constantly showing us that this is the way that we are to come. The, the world is not divided between the good and the bad. It's divided between the self-made and the desperate. And if you're self-made, you're your only hope. But what we see in the scripture, in this passage we find in Jesus, is that it's in the place of desperation, even if it's a broken, messed up motive, this is the way we come to him, you know, empty-handed. And this is where we begin to find hope. So these are where these two people are coming from. This is their struggle. And so, but notice this. Notice the difficulty. At the moment that there's desperation, there's still difficulty in trusting Jesus. And you see it throughout the text. Um, notice this difficulty. So let's start with the religious guy, the, the Pharisee, uh, Jairus. The, the synagogue ruler. Um, it was the guy who actually professed to know God. It was the guy who had it kind of morally together. He actually was struggling, and you see it throughout the text. It's really fascinating. Notice his joy and excitement at first is, I got Jesus. He's coming to my house. We're going to get everything fixed. My daughter's going to live. Like, this is his thinking. He's excited about that. You know, he fell at his feet in verse 22, and he pled in verse 23, my little daughter's dying, please come, lay your hands. And then all of a sudden, we see, we're going to get into this in a second, but you see this religious guy go from kind of excitement, Jesus is coming, to what is going on? And then he hears that, you know, after this story about talking about the hemorrhaging woman, all of a sudden, you get down in verse 39, and Jesus saying, believe. <laughs> He's saying, no, she's, she's asleep. Um, she's not dead. And did you catch the line in verse 40 when it just says, and they laughed at him? They literally went, Jairus' people and his family went from, we can put our trust in you, and now all of a sudden, they're just like cynical, right? You didn't show up, Jesus. You know, you remember with Lazarus when he passed? Very similar moment when Mary and Martha were literally frustrated that Jesus took an extra four days to get there and Lazarus dies. And, but, but you see, Jesus operates on his own time. This is what kind of stinks <laughs> in one sense. But he operates on his own time. So we see this story playing out again. I think it's really important to notice that 
Throughout the scriptures, you see this kind of pattern take place. God operates when he operates. He does his thing. And you take that very moment and you go, okay. And here's the thing. You see the religious guy struggling. He should know this. He would have read the scriptures of old. He would have seen stories play out. And then the way we do it, right? We can know the scriptures. We've memorized it. We know Romans 8. And then life happens and we become cynical. Isn't that what happens? So as he's becoming cynical, you see there's this unexpected interlude that creates this cynical, um, we laughed at Jesus, basically, moment that that family did. And it's just this, it's just with this ritually unclean, hemorrhaging woman, Jesus is pressing through the crowd, and then she bumps into him. And we're even told in the, in the scriptures that she just said, if I could just touch his cloak, if I can just touch his robe, I know I'll be healed. She has her own agenda, remember? She's wanting just to just not be that social stigma, in a sense. But as she's coming, she's hearing about this, and Jesus is going to do some work on her, and he's going to do some work on Jairus, their heart. Now, in this moment, as this is unpacking, we see that Jesus is cutting through there, and all of a sudden, she gets his attention. She touches, and it says that the power left him. He felt something. And even looked at the disciples and was like, who touched me? And I love the sarcasm of the disciples. They're just like, are you serious? There's 5,000 people here, you know? Like, we, are you, like, you really want us to try to investigate that? And he is, tar- Jesus is target locked to know who touched him. It also kind of, this is such side theology. This also is a great moment if you've ever been interested in theology to know that this talks about God's omniscience and his his humanity in the same moment. He's all-knowing, yet as Jesus, this side of heaven, when he was human, he was limited to kind of human things. That's a theological thing that we expect. So he is 100% God and 100% um, human. And it's fascinating. That's how he becomes our substitute, because he is actually that. But anyway, that's a side note. Can you imagine what Jarius must have been thinking? Is Jesus' attention deficit? Like, what is going on? My kids know I am attention deficit, so when things, when there's like squirrel, you know, that moment, it's like, squirrel, I'm like, what's going on, you know? And, and my, my daughter's just like, oh my gosh, dad. You know, that, you know that when you have a friend that might be, if you're like me, then you're the person that's just living life, okay, to whatever direction gets pulled, right? But if you're the person that's like, everything kind of fits, you're like, I'm struggling. So Jarius is struggling here. Is he attention deficit? What's going on? Jarius' joy is crushed when in his mind, Jesus is distracted from his dying daughter. And then when Jarius hears your daughter is dead. I mean, literally, we just said it. He just said, Do we, why bother the teacher anymore? And you can see the spiral. And then they just laughed at him. But what does Jesus do? See, the difficulty in trusting Jesus is he works on his own time. But here's what we see is that Jesus still pursues. His trust in Jesus was actually weak and faltering, one commentator said. But we see the persistence 
of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We sing that hymn. Jesus is persistent. God in his, um, just all of scripture, is, the, is the, he's the great pursuer in the midst of our doubts. That should be so encouraging to us, but it should also be encouraging to the people that we are offering Jesus to. If we struggle, others struggle, whether they know him or not, and we have a God who pursues. So, you know, we see this text here. Jesus pursues, and Jairus' family's given up, but Jesus shows himself to be Lord even over death. He says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Jesus was making a statement about his power. He's all-knowing. And it's interesting, but Jesus knew the beginning from the end, and he still made Jairus wait, and he calls him to believe. Ugh. Isn't that just, come on, like, we can take this story and go, oh, yeah, glad Jairus got that, like, you know, good teaching moment for his life. What teaching moment is Jesus doing in your life right now? What feels out of control? What feels as if, you know, so often we want to put everything in a category and say, I've got this under control. That's me. I like to do that because I feel crazy because I'm attention deficit. So I'm always like, I got to get this here. Got to get this here. And when I know I can't put the boxes in the right spot, I get frustrated. Jesus makes it to the back shelf of my heart. Jesus is teaching about trusting him even in the difficulty. He's saying this, and if you think about this, he's saying that the blessings of God do not come on your timetable. Oh, man, remember that. And that in the providence of God, he gets, we get more than we expect. It may not be what we're looking for or the answer we want, but we get more than we expect because we get him. We get Jesus. And if you're ready to give up, remember Jesus is saying, trust me, I know more than you can possibly know. So often we believe that good old Christian lie, okay, that everything's just going to work out. Okay, follow me. Not the big narrative picture. I'm talking about... It's all going to work out. It's all going to be good. As soon as I get Jesus, it's all going to work out. Let me read you just a short little snippet from uh, Donald Miller's book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. It's a great book, but he said this, Growing up in the church, we're taught that Jesus was the answer to all of our problems. We're taught that there was a circle-shaped hole in our heart and that we tried to fill, we tried to fill it with square pegs of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But only the circle peg of Jesus could fill the hole. I became a Christian based in part on this promise, but the hole never really went away. To be sure, I like Jesus. I still follow him. But the idea that Jesus will make everything better is a lie. It's basically biblical theology translated into the language of infomercials, he says. The truth is, the apostles never really promised Jesus is going to make everything better here on earth. 
Can you imagine an infomercial with Paul testifying to the amazing product of Jesus, saying that he once had power and authority, and since he tried Jesus, he's been moved from prison to prison, beaten and routinely bitten by snakes. Okay. I don't think many people would buy that product. Peter couldn't do any better. He was crucified upside down by some reports. Donna Miller writes, Stephen was stoned outside the city gates. John supposedly was boiled in oil. It's hard to imagine how a religion steeped in so much pain and sacrifice turned into a promise for earthly euphoria. I think Jesus can make things better, but I don't think he's going to make things perfect, not here and now. What I love about the true gospel of Jesus, though, is it offers hope. Paul has hope our souls will be made complete. It will happen in heaven where there will be a wedding and a feast. I wonder if that's why so many happy stories end in weddings and feasts, Donald Miller writes. Paul says, Jesus is the hope that will not disappoint. I find that comforting. Paul says, Jesus is that, or that helps me get through the day, to be honest. It even makes me content somehow. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I always found that just fascinating. I always liked the way Donald Miller writes, just honest. He's just struggling through his own stuff. But isn't that hard? Isn't that what we struggle with? I struggle with this. I have this idea. I'm hoping that God's just going to settle it. But he has another agenda. So here's the question. How can we trust Jesus? That's really the third point. Why can we trust Jesus? What is it that we can do? Or what is it about trusting him that can transform us? See, when... um, I, I, one of the, I remember get this one moment. It was right when my daughter was born, and she tested positive for cystic fibrosis. And as a young dad, she's 16 now, and she tested positive. Well, in that moment, and she she actually did. It was a false positive, but I did not know that in the moment. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets shifted. Like I'm praying to Jesus. But he's totally shifted in, into that back quadrant, that back shelf, like way back there. It's, he's behind the books now. And, and through that, I'll never forget, as soon as we got that false positive, I immediately like, scooped her up, put her in the car. We drove to the hospital for a second test, but it took two weeks to get the test back. So the agony of that. And so I called a friend of mine who actually had some experience. He had, a, he had a, a cousin who had cystic fibrosis, and she was a little bit older. A lot of folks don't live past 25 or 30. And just as a parent, you're just thinking, okay, what do, what do we have in front of us? And many of you have faced hard things. But in this moment, he says to me, and this is actually kind of funny. My friend goes, man, you got to lick that baby. you got to lick the baby. And I was like, What? He goes, back in the 1800s, if they had cystic fibrosis, if you lick them, they just taste like salt. So you just lick her every day, and you just check to see. And I'm sitting there, I'm licking my daughter every day. I'm like, I don't taste any salt. Maybe we're okay. I have no idea. But you see, what, when I trust him, I'm trusting some, you know, old, some, I'm just trusting a thousand things, right? 
And it was kind of funny, actually. We still talk about that. He's, you licked that baby, didn't you, every day? And I said, I did. I was so stressed. We come to find out, like, everything was fine. It was a false positive, which is terrifying. You almost just want to know, it says positive, there's a negative. Like, you just want to be over with. And we'll just move in whatever direction. But here's the thing that I realized, and, and Jerry Bridges says this so well. And when we're, in, we're, we're, when, we tr- when we're struggling to trust God, we have to have kind of a flip in the way that we understand the way that God works. See, we must see our circumstances through God's love. This is what Jerry Bridges says. Instead of seeing God's love through our circumstances, what he's trying to say is that we must, in our circumstances, know that God's love is supreme over that. His absolute love and adoration is what's supreme. And it's, it's, a, it's a shift because a lot of times we read God's love through our circumstances only. Here's my circumstance. I guess God kind of likes me. I'm not sure. I'm like Jairus. I'm struck to be cynical, laugh at him. Or like the woman, you know, the hemorrhaging woman, just like, just get me out of this. But what is, what is God's love? So what, what do we, what is the object of his love? So that's the, isn't that the follow-up question? It's like, oh, good, it's love. I just got to go with love. What's the object of it? What is at the heart of it? It's the cross. It's the cross. Every time we sing, or you know, it's like so often we're singing, and, and everybody, and I know you feel it too. We're singing these songs, and then it gets to the cross, and it's like, I, that's where I'm gonna. That's at the heart of Christianity. That's why we lift our hands when we're singing. When we get to the cross part because that's at the center. But then that's the thing we forget. But what about the cross? For Jairus and this woman, they were trying to get better, but you know what they got? They got Jesus. They were trying to get through their circumstances, and they we see they do. But what Jesus does in his patience and his pursuit is for them to get him. There's that shift, right? We've not talked about this yet, but when the woman touched Jesus, it said that Jesus' power left him. I mentioned it, but it left him. Jesus starts asking the disciples, who touched me, right? They're, they're a little astonished. They're kind of sarcastic. That's a ridiculous question. We have too many people around. It's like at New West Fest or maybe the stampede and you get bumped. You're like, who bumped me? You know, like you're like, I got bumped 20 times, you know. But something happened here. Jesus, we, again, we see that, you know, that divinity and humanity just being played out is like, I don't know who it is, and I am God overall, right? I'm the one who, who heals. I'm the one who knows all things. But in that moment, he asked. Because he knew something happened. It said, you know, here, this word power. He said, the power went from him. And that word there in the Greek is dunamis, from, we, from which we get the word dynamite. This healing was more than helping this woman overcome in sickness. What I want to suggest is this was a picture of substitutional atonement. His, Jesus lost power so that she would gain it. 
It's a picture of the cross. In the cross, Jesus lost power. He lost glory. He lost dignity. He lost the Father so that we might gain hope, glory, a reputation, and, and the communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Where her blood stopped, it began on the cross with Jesus. There's no wonder why Mark is weaving these stories in that actually happen and, 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 and taking these two and going, we've got to tell this story. It's an amazing thing. Jairus had to wait. He had to be persistent. God, Jesus pursues him. See, and that's what happened there. The one, we see this kind of substitutional where he loses power, she gains, we gain. And even this daughter, we're told Jesus went to, in verse 41, it said that he took her hand and said, Talitha Kamum, which means little girl, I say get up. <laughs> if, you, if you read in the text, everybody's around, they're kind of laughing at him. He's like, um, everybody needs to clear the room. I'm going to take father, I'm going to take mother, I'm going to take three of my disciples with me, and uh, we're going to go do um, some, some work here. Literally, this word Talitha means little girl. It can be translated honey, weeding. You see, this is so beautiful. Jesus didn't just show up and he just says, I heal you, I'm out of here, I gotta get to the next thing. You see him slow down, take the patience. You see the cross, you see his kindness and his patience. His patience with these father and the daughter he takes her hand like a gentle father. He takes our hand like a gentle father, and he helps her up. Tim Keller says, why would we want to hurry someone in our broken circumstances, that is, this powerful and this loving, who treats us this tenderly? There's something powerful about that. I don't know what circumstances you're going through, what, what you've lost, but we are promised in the Scripture we have a God who is tender, he is about teaching us, and he's about transforming us to know him and to see his love through the cross and the resurrection as our hope and to know him. And that shapes our circumstances rather than our circumstances, circumstances shaping the way we understand him. Folks, this is why we can trust Jesus. If Jesus has you by his hand, he can take you through the darkest night. Look at his love. It's the cross. How do we receive this in dark times? How do we receive this? Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Earlier, we, 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 we took a moment to confess. That's what we have. When we have failed to trust and love him well, it's not a wall to God. It's a window to his grace and mercy. When you have just blown it up where you're just not trusting him, it's not a wall. It's he is always pursuing to show us that he is about that. And so it's turning our eyes to Jesus. And in repentance, it's turning from our own self-correcting ways and living out of his perfect righteousness for us. That substitute atonement. And then here's what he tells us is that one day he will make all things new. There will be no more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. And so we have the long game in mind. Tr 
Trust is learned, friends, through the cross of Jesus. The gospel lived out is to see our circumstances through God's love on the cross. What pain are you going through, right? We have a savior who takes you by the hand in darkness and never lets us go. May we remember that today, tomorrow, this season. You know, the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have such powerful, amazing um, stories here in the Gospels and throughout the scriptures of, of you at work pursuing us in the midst of what sometimes we think is trust in you and we know it's mixed it's a mixed bag but even in the mixed bag you you pursue us you take us by the hand you you call us gently into the cross you know pain and loss you know what it is to 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 not have to have the father turn as you took our sin upon us on your, upon yourself Lord, would you grow us in a greater sense of what it is to trust you, this side of heaven. Amen. You do it. Still learning. It's communion time, and I want to, so um, we come to this, uh, you know, to the time of communion um, to, to be reminded, really, of what we just talked about. Um, is the gospel. But you know, here's what's interesting about communion is the gospel is, is like it becomes something that we hear and we read and we try to put it in our head. And then with the crackers and the juice, the gospel becomes three-dimensional. It becomes something that we can touch. And I say, God knows that we're made with human, we're flesh and blood, and he knows that we need something that's like tangible. And so we come to this, the table it's not, it's not this church's table, it's the gospel table if you put your hope and your life in him. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup of the new covenant and said, drink. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. I invite you to come forward at your convenience. May you be encouraged by God's grace and mercy.